Actually, can we get them all out? Yeah. Get all the kids out and Nicole. Come out here, kids. I want you to all line up. Because you guys, you guys are just as important. You know, God is powerful and mighty, yet he kind of knows a lot of stuff. And uh, we know that because of Jesus, he likes to draw close as well. And Jesus loved children. And I just want you to know that what's going to happen out there is just as important as what's going to happen in here. And it might sometimes not feel that way. Sometimes it's a bit boring. But, you know, all of us, depending on time, 10, 20, 30 years ago, were about your size. Can you imagine me being your size? Can you imagine teaching me in Sunday school? What a nightmare. <laughs> Nowadays, they would have given me drugs, probably. We had lots of little like flannelette things. And I remember Mrs. Whiteley trying to teach me about David and stuff, and I'd be getting bored. I'm thinking, like, you know, David and Goliath. Oh, yeah, that's pretty interesting. Then this other stuff. Oh, I can't even remember. But I didn't realize that all those lessons over time were actually shaping the way I see. It's a bit like when you eat. Do you remember what you ate two days ago, Taylor? No, but it's actually now a part of you. It's, it's there somewhere in your cells, in your bloodstream. It's kept you alive and it's made you who you are. And that's a bit like what's going to happen now. Some food's like, what food do you hate, Taylor? Do you like Brussels sprouts? <laughs> Sometimes, but Brussels sprouts are actually really good for you. They're a bit boring. They're not as kind of cool as going to Muller Brothers and eating all that lovely chorizo meat, whatever it is. Um, Trasco, yeah, I can't even say it. But when you go out there, I just want you to realise even, and I'm sure Nicole's going to give you maybe, I don't know, what, salt and vinegar chips in terms of the food. No, no, no. Uh, so I just wanted to pray for you and, and just to, um, who knows, like I'm saying 10, 20, 30 years ago, but imagine 10 in, in the Lord's will, 10, 20, 30 years in the future. You're all growing up. Maybe you've got your own kids, you know. So I'm going to pray for you. Father, I just want to pray for Nicole and each of these kids that you know by name. You know them from when they were born to 10, 20, 30 years in the future. Lord, just encourage them today. Really speak to their hearts. Make them to be great men and women in your kingdom. Great kingdom men and women. They might not ever, ever be known on the world stage, but in your eyes, you'll know them. You'll know them really well. And I just pray a rich blessing on each one, that they would be faithful with what you give them. And they'll grow strong in you. Help their parents, Lord. They've got a tough job in the coming years. And I just pray you'd bless the parents in this church. And you'd encourage the parents. Thank you for the job that they've already done. And bringing the kids here. Um, trying to encourage them in your ways. Just encourage them, I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. All right, awesome. See you later, kids. Thanks, mate. Can you swap us over there, Becky? All right, I think can everyone, everyone can hear me, most definitely. Hello. Cool. All right, well, good morning, everyone. I've been thinking a lot about you guys lately, and I've been thinking to myself, we kind of went to a few different, ch- or one church, and it's just really good. I, I love going to other churches and stuff, but I just kind of want to be with you. And I enjoy being with you. And we're not a perfect church by any stretch of the imagination. We're not a shiny with all the bells and whistles and the trinkets, perhaps, of other churches. That's all good. That's all nice. 
Uh, but we're a church of God's people, the living God. We're a, God, we're, we're a church that, you know, that prayer that I prayed before about going deeper, not necessarily shinier. I really pray that for us. Because right now, God can actually come in with that grace effect, that grace power that we've been learning about. And even though we might be feeling a little bit dull and a little bit tired or whatever, a bit stressed out, he can actually come in. There's actually grace for that. He can actually come in right now and take something that might be a bit boring and make it extra special. He can take our lives from normal to super normal, like to, to not necessarily in a shiny, glitzy kind of way, but in a powerful, enduring, faith-filled, hope-filled, love-filled kind of way. And I'm not going to preach for an hour like I did last time. I'm planning to preach for 30 minutes. But we are in our mega series. It's the Meet God Almighty. That's an acronym, Meet God Almighty. And you might have noticed we accelerated the pace a little bit because all year we've been in Genesis and we wanted to try and get through the mega series in a couple of years to give you a 6,000 foot overfly of the Bible and help you see the forest, not just the trees kind of thing of scripture. And so you'll notice we're going to go through Exodus in three, three goes. Now, Exodus is massive. So I really encourage you a lot we have right from the start. You can almost use us like your reading plan. Every time Adrian or Ben or Luke or Tim or whoever's preaching goes, hey, this week we're in blah, why don't you read around it? So this week we're looking at Moses and the mountain. And I really encourage you maybe over the next few weeks to read Exodus yourself because there's so much in it, so much. But today I just wanted to talk to you about mountains. And I want to describe something for you. Um, And I want us to put ourselves there because if we don't put ourselves there, then it's kind of a little bit hard to really feel the full weight of what's happening. So I want you to imagine that you are involved from the day of your birth in excruciating, sweaty, dirty, laborious labor. You are making bricks for an oppressive king. You are part of his infrastructure plan, his building plan. And there's no unions. There's no grace given. There's no big, nice work breaks, weekends off. It's just day in, day out. As a baby, you grow and you probably see your dad go off and come back and he's dirty and dusty. Next thing, as soon as you're old enough, you're there as well. You're making stinking bricks in the stinking hot sun, in the stinking wet season, in the stinking dry season for a stinking rich king. Day in, day out. Can you imagine the emotional, mental issues that these people would have? And there's no psychologist, there's no therapist, there's no counsellor you can probably even go and talk to. There's just the bricks. There's just sweat, dirt, labour, whips for hundreds of years. Then suddenly, as we saw last week, a guy called Moses shows up and he doesn't even have a Hebrew name. It's an it's a Egyptian name. You know he's been part of the Egyptian royal family. He's been off somewhere for decades He's back now and he's talking about Yahweh. He's talking about this God called I Am. Now, if you've been entrenched in this kind of lifestyle, this brick-making lifestyle, and you've probably absorbed a lot of the Egyptian gods and customs, and all of a sudden it's just Yahweh. Now, who's this desert God that Moses met in the middle of nowhere, and now he's calling us out. He's telling us that this is the God our great-great-great-great-great-granddaddies and grandmummies knew, and he's saying, come out. He's saying, come out. I'm going to take you out there somewhere to a promised land, a land of milk and honey. We're going to take you away from the bricks and the dirt and the sweat. 
I'm going to deliver you. I mean, you'd have to be incredulous, probably. And yet, stuff starts to happen. Moses goes in and you hear about this maybe secondhand, thirdhand, and he confronts the king. He actually goes to Pharaoh and he says, let my people go. And then there's all these confrontations. It's almost like light and darkness. The, the gods of Egypt are confronted by Yahweh. The gods of agriculture, the gods of sexuality, the gods of power, of economy, of fertility, Yahweh. There's blood plagues, there's frog plagues, there's lice plagues, there's gnat plagues. Every time, let my people go, soften your heart. No. Pharaoh goes, no, no, no. Livestock, boils, hail, locusts, darkness, and then finally the death of the firstborn. And you, a slave of a slave nation, see it all. You see literally a kilometre that way, hail falling on Pharaoh's um, land and livestock, and yours is untouched. And in the middle of the night, you grab your stuff and you go. And by all accounts, it's not just hundreds or thousands, it's millions of people in the middle of the night, slowly streaming out of the city, gathering little, little, little groups first, then bigger groups, then bigger groups. It's like little streams, little streams of people, little re-entrance of people flowing into this big stream. And out the front is Moses. And you go. And it's a, it's a magnificent time. It's a time of, wow, expectation, hope. There's freedom. You can smell it. You're breathing it. And then you come to an ocean, the Red Sea. But you've seen so many miracles, you're like, God can take care of this one. This is going to be good. No. You start complaining and you're scared and you're worried. And Moses is like, whoa, what's going to go on here? Why do we go this way? There's another way we could have gone, a shorter way. And now we're here. And you all know the story, don't you? Moses goes out and he raises his staff and those billions of tons of water. I love it in Prince of Egypt, such a powerful scene there. But that wouldn't do it justice. And then there's the the, the, the pursuing Egyptians because they want all their slave army back because they know what that means for their economy. The Romans knew what it meant. If they didn't have slaves, you didn't have the Colosseum, you didn't have all that stuff. So Pharaoh certainly knows what this now means for his economy. He wants them back. And then all of a sudden, Yahweh again, bang, big pillar of fire. And it separates the Egyptians on one side where the Israelites are. It's like day. On the other side, it's just dark, pitch blackness. And the the Israelites go through, through the Red Sea. I mean, I always think of those, uh, those experiences when you go to... The, the big aquariums, the big aquatic centres, and they've got the thick plate glass, and you're like, and the shark can come right up, and you're oh, like, kind of feel, feel powerful, feel the, my humanity ruling. Uh, I, just, I don't know, I just always think that's kind of what it was like. You know, there's like sea creatures and stuff. Ooh. You see a bit of that in Prince of Egypt, maybe you should watch it again after this. Let my people go. Deliverance. And through you go, and of course, Egyptians come in, Done with, gone. They were, 
They were given so many opportunities, they didn't listen. Their hardness finally took them to the bottom of a watery grave. And now, now this Yahweh, this, this pillar of fire, which now, when it's time to move, goes to the front of these millions of people and it drives on through the desert. And, you know, the other day I was driving along and I saw a big, what we call in the piloting world, a towering cumulus. So a towering cumulus is just before the thunderstorm. And what it is, is essentially cumulus cloud that just towers up. It looks like a big pillar. And I was thinking, you know what? I'm pretty sure, because in our heads, we see the little pictures and they're just like this little, little pillar. No, I reckon it was this big, massive, towering cumulus. And probably at night, it was full of lightning and stuff. That was the fire. And it just drove forward. And so it's driven forward to this place called Sinai. It's a mountain. And now a few million of you stand at the base of this mountain, and it's a mountain of fire. This is what Exodus says. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. So this is not just a normal storm. A normal storm's scary enough, right? Have you ever been in a superstorm, in a bad storm? It's scary. The other day, you know, we heard the hail coming. The... You hear it. It's almost got like this animal type roar to it. Scary. Everyone in the camp trembles as they hear this loud trumpet blast. And it's probably like almost a war trumpet. People are so afraid that when your physiological systems begin to be overwhelmed, we actually begin to shake. Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace. The whole mountain trembled violently. So you're standing there. There is thunder and lightning. There is fire. You can, have you ever been near a bushfire? You, feel, you actually feel the heat, sometimes hundreds, maybe even kilometers, uh, hundreds of meters in front. Or even just a campfire, you know if it's a big furnace type campfire, you feel the heat on your face. Imagine, you're feeling the heat. You're feeling the heat of that. And so I want to, as we, as we think about that, as we think of everything that's happened and maybe you put yourself there, we come up with this question and it's an ancient question. It's a, it's a question that's confronted all cultures of all people through all history. It's a question Moses and the millions of ex-slaves faced as they looked up at the mountain, as they looked up at the presence of God in this fiery furnace. And it's this, who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may ascend this fiery, lightning bolt, thundery mountain of God? This was a psalm that David actually prayed later on and sung later on, who may ascend the hill of the Lord? And sometimes we think that's metaphorical, but he's actually drawing, I believe, from this history of his nation where they um, came face to face with a living God at Mount Sinai. So when we say, who may ascend the hill of the Lord, what we're actually saying is, who can come into his presence? Well, think about that. You can feel the fire, the heat, the ground is shaking. And it's like, this is the God who wants to commune with us now who wants to have fellowship how does that work how does that work in the face of extreme furnace-like fiery awesome magnificent presencing holiness 
And, and maybe many of us think, you know what, because we know Jesus, we don't. That's all in the past. Well, is it? Or maybe if you're not into this Christian stuff, you're like, it's not even relevant to me. Why would I need to change? God made me. He should actually look after me. But it's a strange thing, isn't it? Because we look at the royals, you know, Prince Harry and, and Megan. Everyone loves them, right? I love them. I think they're really cool. I love watching them, see what they're up to. I don't stalk them on, you know, Facebook or anything. But you look at all the people that meet them. They have changed themselves in order to meet. They don't just rock up in there, as the Kiwis would say, their jandals or whatever, unless that's their honorary dress. You know, they prepare themselves. They in some way change themselves. And all cultures through all history have recognised that if there is really the divine royal being called God, that we somehow need to change ourselves. We can't just go to him with our jandals. You know what jandals are? Thongs? Oh, you don't know what jandals are? Thongs. (laughs) Thongs. <laughs> Thongs. So, so, so if they're changing themselves, how much more God, um, how much more the, this God, this Yahweh? So getting right with God, ascending the hill of God has spawned all sorts of religions and rituals and ideas. I was just reading about ancient Incan cities, which they're finding more and more through LIDAR, which is a light and laser radar system. They can actually pierce the jungle and get underneath all the old infrastructure and they're finding all these Incan cities sometimes some of them are like 500 years before Christ and every time they find these horrific rituals you would not have wanted to be in one of these cities like human sacrifice piercing themselves and like I won't even go into some of the things that they actually pierce in order to please the gods over and over again people going how do I send the hill of the God hill of the Lord how do I get into the presence of God over and over like we just kind of almost take it for granted these days as Christians And yet all over the world, we should pray for people because they are constantly frustrated. They want to know God. They want to get to know God um, outside of Western civilization, perhaps. And they're trying to go through these robes, these rituals, these kind of things, you know, to get there. Nowadays, most people would go in our Western society, who cares? What God? What hill? If he is there, he's probably far away. But just think for a moment, if Gowrie Mountain just erupted, and there's a trumpet blast, and there's lightning, and there's thunder, and we all gather around, and someone's get a drone, and the drone goes, and it's instantly destroyed. Um, <laughs> Channel 7, you know, they've got a bit of footage, but then the camera falls over because the guy just got so scared that he ran away, or the lady, or whatever. I mean, th- this is what, as we read the Word of God, this is what the Israelites were confronted with. And like, how, do you get, how, how do you get to know this God without being consumed? Well, the biblical answer, I believe, to that question of who may ascend the hill of the Lord, who may ascend Sinai, who who may dwell with the living God, is far better and far worse than you ever imagined. Thank you, John Dixon, um, for the the idea for that title. It's far worse and it's far better. So I want to go with the bad news first, okay? And this is, as, as far as I understand it, looking at the life of Moses. And again, please read it yourself. This is... Why it's far worse. It's far, it's far worse than what you think. The answer is far worse and far better. But let's do far, far worse. And firstly, the reason it is far worse than you could ever imagine is because the holiness of God is more grand, more infinite, more magnificent, more consuming than you can ever imagine. And the God of the Bible expects that those who will attempt to ascend the hill of the Lord, who will come into his presence, 
will be more holy than you can ever imagine. You will be as holy as God himself. This is what the psalm says. Remember, I mentioned that David wrote this psalm, Psalm 24, who may ascend the hill of the Lord, who may stand in his holy place. Not just a metaphor. Like I said, he's tying into Sinai, the history of his people. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false, he will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God, his saviour, such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, O God of Jacob. So if you're there at the bottom of that mountain, can you ascend the hill of the Lord? The Israelites see the glory of the Lord and it looks like a consuming fire. Only someone who is absolutely pure, absolutely clean, someone who is so faith-filled, hope-filled, someone who is understanding the justice of God and lives that second by second, only that person. And so you've got this awesome holiness, this magnificence, this thundering raw power but not just power you've got presence you've got the presence of god in a, in a special way god is present everywhere but now in a focused kind of way he's more there's, there's this intensity about it personal presence again you read about it, it's like mount sinai is covered with smoke because the lord descended on it in fire the smoke billows up from it like smoke from a furnace the whole mountains is, is is trembling violently it's the sound of the trumpet and it's not just going at the same volume it's getting louder and louder and louder Moses spoke and the voice of God answered him and the Lord descended to the top of Mount Sinai and he called Moses to the top of the mountain. Moses went up and the Lord said to him, go down and warn the people so they do not force their way through to see the Lord because many of them will perish. And Moses said to, uh, to the Lord, the people cannot come up because you have warned us and I've put limits around it and I've made it holy. Out of millions of people, Delivered people, chosen people, only one gets to go up. Have you thought about that before? Our God is a consuming fire. That is from Hebrews. That's from the New Testament. That's not just from the Old Testament. Our God is a consuming fire. And you might say, well, what's the big deal? Anyone could go up. Clearly, Moses wasn't consumed by the fire. So I wouldn't be either. But you should know some things. You should know, like I said, that in the New Testament, we're told that God is a consuming fire. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe for our God is a a consuming fire. You know, we often read that and think it's almost like a warm fire. It's not. The holiness of God consumes sinful people. And then in Hebrews, we're told, make every effort to live in peace with all men and be holy. Without holiness, no one sees the Lord. Jesus himself, in wrapping up the entire Sermon on the Mount, does anyone remember how he wrapped up the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through to 6, 7, 8? Be holy as your Father in heaven is holy. And you'll hear many times pastors grapple with that, theologians grapple with that, and they'll try and water it down a bit. No, be holy as your Father in heaven is holy. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? He or she who is holy like your father in heaven is holy. You may ascend the hill of the Lord. Without holiness, no one sees the Lord. And you know, 
to be the people of God and to live with that towering cumulus, that pillar of fire and cloud, it came many times at a very high cost. I think when you're given that amount of presence of God and that amount of miracles, you've been given a lot, so much is demanded. And so oftentimes you'll see the people of God and they're grumbling and they're carrying on and they're whinging. And it's amazing how many times it's whinging. It's grumbling that gets them into so much trouble. For example, at one time, the sons of Korah, they want to basically take over and leave. Anyone remember what happens to them? Ground just opens up beneath them. Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, they they take their senses and we're not sure exactly what happened. But remember, they've seen all these miracles and they they do something that's unauthorized. They, uh, They offer unauthorized fire and fire comes out and consumes them. Without holiness, this fire becomes a consuming fire. We talked about Korah. When we talked about 14,000 people that then die, then they're right on the border of the promised land and we're told that they begin to grumble and go, there's no way we can go in there. There's giants. These are the people that walked through and saw the Red Sea, the thunder and the lightning. It's actually right there still. The pillar of fire, while they stand on the border of the promised land, is still there. I don't think we'd be any better, really, if we were there. Maybe we would. Who knows? And God says, how long will this wicked community grumble against me? We'll be so careful of grumbling. As surely as I live, declares the Lord, I will do to you the very thing I heard you say. In the desert, your bodies will fall. Every one of you, 20 years or older, will fall. So for 40 years, these people just naturally die out while they wander around in the desert. Without holiness, no one gets to see the, see the Lord. And if you don't get to see the Lord, you don't get to see the promised land. The promised land is a place where God's kingdom rule, God's kingdom values are evident everywhere and they dominate everything. And they're awesome because they're a, they're a, it's a kingdom of love. It's a kingdom of grace. It's a kingdom of selfless giving. It's a kingdom of wonder and awe. Of course, I'm not just speaking about Israel. I'm talking about that future kingdom, that future heaven and earth. And yet these people missed out and we can miss out too. In Hebrews, again, we're told, don't be like them. Don't think that you're any better. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? We see probably 20 chapters in Exodus of um, comprehensively complex systems of worship to get people into the right posture and and, um, state before God. There's the tabernacle. There's a system of sacrifice. There's all these things, over 600 laws to get people right so they can ascend the hill of the Lord, so they can actually get into the presence of God and be with him. You can read about them yourself at another time. And again, I say, can you ascend the hill of the Lord? Can you? Out of all those millions of people at the bottom of the mountain on that day and night, were there people that were kinder than you maybe, more giving than you, more patient, funnier, more attractive, more pious, more confident? Do you, do you think? I think there was. I think there was probably lots of people. Out of two million, in terms of 
their humanity and who they were as humans, there's probably heaps of them that were way better than us. And yet not one of them gets to go to the top of the hill. You will need to be as holy as he is holy. And if holiness and splendor and power and grandeur is his character and he can't deny himself and he won't deny himself and he's not going to change, so what, is, what does that leave? We have to change. But wait, wait, wait. wait. Don't all religions say that? Don't all religions say that to you? Don't all religions say, you be holy like God? Doesn't Allah say that? Don't all the various Hindu deities in one way or another, however they define holiness, say, you be holy like I'm holy. You wash yourself in that river. You pierce yourself. You cut yourself. The ancient Incas, you do what I want you to do. All those gods, you be holy like I am. Isn't that just what every other God says? I was listening to a debate between Christopher Hitchens and Peter Hitchens. Christopher Hitchens, the famous atheist, the, one of the four men of the apocalypse, as they're called, the four, the four kind of atheists of the apocalypse. They're called like the four writers. Marvellous orator. R- rhetorical skills that are incredible. BBC radio voice. As soon as you listen, you just want to hear. And strangely enough, this is how I know God does have a sense of humour because his brother Peter... Christian, atheist Christian, debating. And I was trying to get to the heart because Christopher Hitchens is an awesome debater, but he doesn't really, he doesn't look at the big picture. He just picks little things. But one of the things I think that was at the heart of his debate over and over again was this, was, um, and I just want to put this up, uh, was this is how it works. And I can't do it in his BBC radio. It's Basically, this is how it works. You're told to do and be something you can never be. That makes you perpetually sinful and guilty, which means that makes you perpetually needy. You need a priest. You need a figure of authority. You need a king to grant you um, grace, to give you kind of, um, what's the word I'm searching for? Give you uh, forgiveness and all that stuff. And that makes you basically a slave. That was the gist of it. And I was thinking, I agree with you. I agree with you. That's exactly what religion has done for thousands, probably tens of thousands. Who knows? How long? That's exactly what it's done. Does anyone know what this is a picture of? It's not me. (laughs) I probably didn't need to say that. You would have heard maybe in Greek mythology of of Sisyphus. So he was this trickster and he kept tricking the gods. Fictitional, right? And he would use even uh, trickery to avoid death. And finally, the gods had enough, so they condemned him to eternal hard labor. And his punishment was to push a boulder towards the top of a hill. But right on the crest, just when he thought he was going to succeed, it would roll down again. And eternally, push the boulder up, roll down. Push the boulder up, roll down. Albert Camus, another atheist, used this as an example to show the terrible injustice of religion uh, Christopher Hitchens, God is not good. That was his book. This is the gist of it. You're just telling people. To... I had a friend who was an atheist, actually, said the same thing. You just, these standards of perfection, you can never achieve them. And then you hear pastors will go, that's exactly right. So you'll know. So you'll know. Like, this, that's what it's all about. But you don't really have to achieve them. Is that, is that what you've heard before? Well, that's what I've heard before. Maybe you haven't. But, uh, and so it's almost like this downplaying of the holiness of God. But when you read through the Bible and you see this thundering mountain, you see people getting consumed, you kind of go, I think God actually means it when he says, be holy. And when Jesus says, be holy, I think he actually means it. 
And so, you know, you had this debate, and I must admit, you know, this feeling of being subjugated and never being good enough, it, it was there for a long time in my life, and it's pretty demoralizing. After a while, you don't really like this God. Why, why would you like a God who tells you to roll this boulder to the top of the hill and never quite make it? You know, do, I don't, am I missing something here? Do you guys, have you guys sometimes felt that? You don't have to have felt it. And that's why I say this is, the answer to this, the biblical answer is, far worse than what you could have imagined. But here's where we look at why, in the Bible, the answer is also far better. Because what if the God of Sinai, in all that magnificent presencing holiness, we could be curious about this for a moment, what if, what if this God was extreme love? Not just kind of holy, infinite love that's far away, but selfless, self-sacrificing love, what would you expect to happen? I mean, what would a God like that, who requires you to get to the top of the mountain, where the view is eternally grand and the air is infinitely sweet and the life is everlastingly awesome, what would a God who is love and holiness do? Well, I'd say he'd come down off that mountain I'd say he'd come down off that mountain and help us out. And I actually issue a challenge to all the other gods of the universe, if they can hear me, and I say, why don't you get off your butt and come down and help us? I say that to all major religions. You have put such a a boulder, a weight on us. I say to you, come down and help us. All these demands, all these religious rituals and things that are supposed to make us good, and yet they just make us feel more guilty. And to all the Christian little G God worshippers out there who have done the same thing and just make you feel guilty all the time, just make you feel bad all the time, I say, why don't you get off your butt and come down and help us? And to Christopher Hitchens and to everyone that follows him, I would say, I'm going to be bold and say to this God of sign, I'm not going to be disrespectful like that, but I'm going to say, God, would you, would you come down? Would you come down and help us? This is a big burden. Like to, to be holy as you are holy, this is massive. And we have an answer, don't we? Because from these ex-slaves, thousands of years later, descended from these ex-slaves, comes a man called Jesus. And this Jesus, he claims to be God he calls himself Yahweh, the same Yahweh that's on the top. He, he said, it's a play on words. I, I am. I am the bread of life, Yahweh, the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, the life, Yahweh. He's saying he is Yahweh. I am the resurrection. I am the father of one. He's, he's, his miracles are flowing out of his fingertips. The blind see. People are walking again that have never walked. People are being raised from the dead. His teachings, his love for the oppressed. His questioning and pushback on the religious hypocrites of the day. So they're so winsome that hundreds, then thousands, then over the ages, millions, then billions follow this man and believe him to be God. It's the face of God. It's Jesus. And there in Jesus, we have, we have God um, appearing many times on the mountain. <laughs> I just went through the New Testament, thought I'd share a couple of things with you. And so if Jesus is on the mountain, it's the mountain of God, right? Isn't it? Test my theology, you can come back to me later. Jesus is on the mountain of God. 
So here it is in Luke. On one of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray, spent the night praying to God. And when the morning came, he called his disciples to him. It's, it's a thunderless, lightningless, fireless mountain, but it is no less the mountain of God. It is God in Christ, and he prays there through the night, and he calls his disciples to him. And they just wander up. And they sit down. He goes, I'm choosing you. I want you to go and spread the word. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Well, these disciples just did. So maybe this answer that we're after, this better answer is, maybe this has got some hope to it. Um, here he is again, God on the mountain or God off by himself. And in Mark, we're told the apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. And then because so many people were coming and going, they didn't even have a place to eat. He said, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. This is God in Christ. Wouldn't you like that? You know, you've got Gowrie, Sinai, and then you've got, just come away. Let's get some rest. We'll have a chat. We'll talk. This better answer, I don't know, I'm starting to think, ooh. Uh, Now, again, we're told, here he is again, God on the mountain, the mountain of God, Matthew 5, the sermon on the the mount. We're told that when he sees the crowds, he goes up on the mountainside, he sits down, begins to teach them, his disciples come to him, and evidently, when you read through the rest, you can see all the crowds are around as well. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. On and on and on, various teachings. And all the crowds are just there on the mountain of God. They've all ascended the mountain of God. And they're all just sitting there. Like, how cool is that? And now here's where you see what I call a crossover, right? Because we're, we're all wondering, what happened to Sinai? And we're all thinking, well, how does this relate? And so then we're told that in Luke 9, Jesus says to his disciples, I tell you the truth, some of you who are standing here will not taste death before you see the kingdom of God. Eight days later, Jesus takes him up a mountain to pray. And as he's praying, the appearance of his face changes. His clothes become as bright as a flash of lightning. Guess who shows up? Moses and Elijah. They appear in glorious splendor. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but then they became fully awake. (laughs) And while he was speaking, a cloud appeared and enveloped them as this glorious cloud. It's a crossover. It's almost like Jesus is saying, you know what? Yes, I'm here in my, for my own mysterious purposes or whatever. I'm here to redeem the world. And in a mysterious way, you can now dwell with me because I am man. I have become down. I've come down from the mountain. But don't forget, don't forget this truth that our God is a consuming fire. But now with Jesus, you're not being consumed. And then the ultimate mountain, the ultimate hill, it's an ugly hill. And I have a picture in my head, and it's like, so we're down there, right, at the bottom of Sinai with all the Israelites, and we're looking up, and we're thinking, oh, man, I wish that cloud would clear so I could see what God looks like. That'd, would you be interested in that? I would be. I think if I was up even in my fear, it would be, oh, what does he look like? Moses wanted that, remember, later on. He said, what do you look like? And um, God, he sort of, all he got to see was the afterglow. He didn't even get to see God. And anyway, so we're there, and then maybe for a moment there's a, rift in the space-time continuum and, 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 and you go, I want to see what God looks like and, it, and, and all that fire and lightning and thunder, it, 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 it sheds itself, it just like scales off the side of the mountain and what do you see? You see a man and he's carrying his own cross and he's going to the top and there's crosses, there's other crosses up there 
And deep in your heart, there's a, there's a sense of this is what God looks like. This is the ultimate revelation of God in Christ. Carrying his own cross, he goes out to the place of the skull, the hill of the skull. That is what God looks like. That is the ultimate revelation. And everyone goes past in that time, you know, 2,000 years ago, and, and they don't even realise. Carrying his own cross, Golgotha, Mount Sinai, do you see the juxtaposition there? Christopher Hitchens, oh, very interesting book. It was written by a guy, I can't remember his name right now, but he was a friend of Christopher Hitchens and uh, he got to tour with Christopher Hitchens and this guy was a Christian and he, and he had these big road trips across America with Christopher Hitchens and they talked back and forth and he got Christopher to read the uh, book of John and they would debate and talk and who knows what might happen to that guy. Uh, to Christopher as he was being treated by another Christian, Francis Crick, the head of the genome, Human Genome Project. But I, I pray that Christopher Hitchens got some sense of what I've just showed you now, because this is one of the most magnificent truths in the universe. Sinai, Golgotha. God descending, coming for us, satisfying all the debt that we had because of our sin, Making you holy. Making you as holy as your Father in heaven is holy. And you might say, how, how, how? You've got you to humble yourself. You've got to go, I'm not that holy. I'm not that holy myself. I need you. You need to pledge your faith, which is pledge your allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. And then you'll follow him for the rest of your life, depending on him. Otherwise, you're just like Sisyphus, just up and down, big boulder, weight. You know, when we consider the mountain of God, it's very surprising. There's crossovers. There's even a reverse crossover. Do you know in Numbers, this is what we're told. Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, the 70 of elders of Israel, they went up. They saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like a pavement made of sapphire, clear as the sky itself. God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God and they ate and they drank. To me, that's a little picture of how, what God's going to do. And just before those verses, we're told there's this sacrifice of blood, which is actually pointing to Jesus, the ultimate sacrifice. And because of that, for a moment in time, these men are not depending on their own righteousness. They're depending on that sacrifice by faith that somehow that's made them right before God. They've pledged their allegiance. They're seeking the face of God and we find the face of Jesus there. The cross over is a cross of holiness and love, grace and justice, brokenness and redemption, death and life. And we all have our own, own hills to climb. Anyone recognise that one? I think nearly everyone here has been up tabletop. We have our own burdens. And at the start, we asked, what would a God of extreme holiness and extreme love, you know, what would he do? And I want to tell you that the story just doesn't end, even though it's so magnificent at the cross. He then tells us that he will be with us. And so I have another picture, and it's sort of the, the mountain of life, if you like. And here's Adrian, and he's got his awesome piloting skills, and he's got his awesome um, safety management and riding. He's got a beautiful family. He's got a nice house. 
And he's coming to the mountain of God and he's going, oh God, look, look at all this stuff. And it's like, yeah, that looks cool, but are you as holy as I'm holy? And I'm going, nah. <laughs> no, I'm not. Cool, come back when you are. And so I come back. This time I'm with someone. And I'm walking with him, Emmanuel, the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm walking with him through the power of his spirit. And I'm almost in his glow radius kind of thing. So when God looks down, he sees me, but I'm locking the glow radius. Because I am, I've pledged my allegiance. I'm depending on Jesus. And now he's walking with me. He's walking with me. I'm walking in the radiating glow of the sun. As we're told in the Psalms, he who daily bears our burdens. I feel that. I feel that grace. Whatever mountain, whatever burden you've got, if God has gone, the holiness, the presence, the awesome, the grandeur has gone to, the, to Golgotha. And then he said, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. There's grace. There's grace wherever you're at now. There's such grace for that. There's Emmanuel's grace. And as we finish up, I want to introduce you to one more mountain. And just begin thinking about communion. Begin thinking about remembering Jesus. Remembering the holiness. Remembering that meal with the 70 elders and Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu in the pavement of Sapphire. And now there's something about God and meals. Think about that. But I want to introduce you one more mountain. It's this mountain still to come. It's Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. And told in Revelation that John is carried away and he sees this mountain. He sees Jerusalem. In Hebrews, we're told, you have not come to a mountain that, is tu- that can be touched and that is burning with fire to darkness, gloom and storm, to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them. Imagine that. And then imagine Jesus. Come with me to a quiet place. We're going to talk. Have you ever thought about what Jesus has accomplished? It's, it's, it's staggering. But you've come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You've come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous people made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you don't refuse. Don't let life get you down. Don't get this Sisyphus kind of, oh, this burden that God has put on me is too big. Don't, get, don't do that. God loves you so much. Don't turn away. Since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. Tozer said, I'm looking for the fellowship of the burning heart, men and women of all generations and everywhere that love the Saviour until adoration has become the new word and they do not have to be entertained or amused. This Christ is everything. He is their all in all. I am looking for men and women who are lost in worship, those who love God until he is the sweetheart of the soul. I just hope that today you've seen some of that. I pray that it puts a song in your heart. I pray that 
you know, there's maybe a song we can sing about this. I have one that I want to share with you as we come to remember him now in communion. And I ask the older people to bear with me, a younger man, because you're about to listen to some Christian hip hop. And I just ask you to open yourself up for a moment and just listen to the words. We're going to play this one first that's called um, Emmanuel. It's by a band called Beautiful Eulogy. And I want you to listen to this and prepare your hearts for communion. It goes for two minutes. So can you do two minutes of hip hop? The second song after communion is called Doxology. It's about the glory of God. And he's also hip hop. And I want you to listen and I want you to just maybe think to yourself. Sinai, the mountain of fire, Golgotha, in between Jesus who now, even now, is with us. And as you, uh, once this finishes, this first bit, we invite you to, to come forward. I think we're nearly ready to go there with the music. Uh, we'll keep the cup. And like I said, there'll be a bit of a break. So just, just stay in your seats for now. Just listen. Uh, the words will be up on the screen as well in case you can't understand. Here we go. Emmanuel invites you to Emmanuel's table where the fire and the lightning and the thunder of Sinai are no less real but constrained within the work and the body and the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, constrained for you and for me. And the ultimate constraint, the ultimate meekness is seen in this blood that represents his blood spilt on that cross. He's interposing his worthiness put on you. The curiosity of angels and principalities and powers as the creator draws through the cosmos to the created. So come and enjoy Emmanuel's table where his holiness is now on you and make every effort, every effort to ascend the hill of the Lord, resting in his glow, resting in his strength. Father, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit. Right now, the curiosity of those principalities and power look in on us and go, what is it? What will it take to spark devotion and worship for the one that we see every day who is so glorious? Oh, Lord, you know that we are just weak, just little flickering flames, bruised reeds. You love us. You didn't leave us shaking in fear at the bottom of that mountain. You came for us. And we celebrate that now. At whatever level of devotion we have, Lord, we trust that there's grace for that, that you're going to grow us as we humble ourselves. Take away fear. Take away shame. Make us victorious people in you. And as we eat, bring power. As, as, as we drink, bring power, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So in your own time, come and come to Emmanuel's table. We'll keep the cup and we will drink the cup together.